Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. We're down to just three weeks until our virtual 2021 annual meeting kicks off March 2nd through 4th. Registration is open through the end of February. However, space is limited and we are reaching capacity quickly. Don't delay. Make sure you have a seat at the table. Head over to www.tipqc.org. That's T-I-P-Q-C.org to register today. This week, we welcome back our very first repeat guest, Dr. Stephen Patrick. Dr. Patrick and Dr. Murad sit down and discuss the new NAS predictor tool recently released by the Vanderbilt Center for Child Health Policy. Let's tune in. We are very excited to welcome Dr. Stephen Patrick on today's podcast. I hope our listeners had the opportunity to listen to your previous podcast, but just in case uh, they missed it, give us a little bit of background about you. Uh, so I'm Stephen Patrick. I'm a neonatologist at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, and I also direct the Vanderbilt Center for Child Health Policy. And I know that one of your top clinical interests is around care of infants with neonatal abstinence syndrome and NAWS. Do you have a preference between those terms? I really like the term NAWS. It's just a little bit more specific. I think neonatal abstinence syndrome is just a vague and kind of weird term. Neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome just makes a bit more sense. And I, you know, it doesn't mean that you're referring exclusively to an opioid. It's usually an opioid plus another substance. And so for us, and, and including for many federal agencies now, folks are starting to use neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome just for its clarity. I will do my best to remember that through this podcast. So tell us a little bit about your most recent work um, on the clinical prediction model for development of NAILS. One of the challenges we've had is that, you know, we approach all opioid exposed infants the same. It's essentially a one size fits all approach. And and that's true for national guidelines. We have these set patterns of observing infants between three and seven days of life uh, to see if they develop drug withdrawal, because not every infant develops drug withdrawal. And there's really been not a lot of literature to guide how we you know, uh, manage those infants and observe them after they're born. And so that's really where this clinical risk prediction tool began. It's trying to understand how we might be able to begin to tailor our observation period of infants based upon their individual uh, risk. It's essentially personalized medicine for opioid-exposed newborns. And I certainly think that this may be easier to see with a visual, so I encourage everybody to go and look at the article. However, can you walk us through how you started the development of the tool? Yeah, for sure. So we use data from uh, TenCare, the Tennessee Medicaid program, merged with vital statistics. And so we have several years of data, uh, more than 200,000 maternal infant dyads. But we were really rooted in the literature and some of our previous work about 
uh, risk factors, things that we knew that mattered. So we know, for example, drug half-life matters. If you have a longer half-life opioid, you're going to be more likely to um, to develop drug withdrawal. And then there are some other things too. Birth weight matters. Uh, males appear to be at higher risk of having drug withdrawal than females. So we we began this process of of evaluating how the best risk model using the literature and using our clinical experience to begin to whittle down on a clinical risk prediction model that performed well and that was parsimonious. It had the fewest amount of things in it. And the other thing that we wanted to make sure was that these would be data that would be readily available to folks at the time of delivery. It's not like you needed to wait a couple of days. The the things in the model are are available, you know, you would know as a clinician right around the time of delivery. Were there any things about the antenatal factors or exposures that were surprising to you? Uh, you know, honestly, not that much, in part because uh, the literature for some of these things has been uh, has been pretty clear. Um, I think along the way, there, there have been some surprises. Like we were initially surprised when we found that male infants had higher risk of drug withdrawal than females. Um, there's also some interesting findings we've had along the way that you know, it's not just that cigarette use increases the infant's uh, risk of drug withdrawal, or mom's cigarette use, not the baby's cigarette use, increases the risk of drug withdrawal, but it's the amount that you smoke. There's a dose response there. So I think those pieces are, are pretty interesting when you take them together along the way. It's very interesting. So tell us a little bit about the factors that didn't prove to be very influential. Were there any of those that were surprising to you? Yeah, when we um, when we looked at the most parsimonious model, uh, things that fell out were things like SSRIs. I mean, on the whole, SSRIs do increase risk of drug withdrawal. But when we put them in the final model, uh, it fell apart. But it's important to understand what the model is trying to do. The model is not trying to say these are every single factor that is associated with drug withdrawal. It's trying to t- get the simplest amount of things that go together that predict drug withdrawal. So SSRIs fell out when we went from our big, more complicated model to, to our high-risk model, but, but that's okay. The model still performed similarly well. What are the limitations to this model? The first of it is that you know, it was derived with, uh, with retrospective data and in a certain time period. You know, this is now from 2014 was our latest time period because it took a long time to work through the methods to develop this, this model. So you know, I think the biggest limitations are this is something that really needs to be validated prospectively and using clinical data, not just birth certificate and billing data. Um, and that's something that we're actually working through now. And ideally, it would be something that we would do in a clinical trial. So even though we're able to risk stratify infants, what does that mean? You know, how do you actually apply that? And one of the ideas that we're hopefully going to push forward is that, you know, what if we were able to discharge home earlier, low risk infants who were in stable home environments uh, with the right kinds of supports? And then maybe we had more intense, you know, uh, attention to those infants that are at the higher risk. But that really is a next step for this. How do you envision that getting started? Well, first is funding. We have to we have to have funding for that. But you know, our our process of beginning to validate that is is just using some of our own clinically collected data as we look and see. You know, it's a pretty some of this is pretty easy. It's basically like here's what we would predict to happen and what actually happened, and then trying to account for those differences. And I should say that we did validate the model 
but we did it in a, in a way that uses simulation and not in a way that uses kind of a clinical cohort of infants. The actual clinical model is available on the Center for Child Health Policy website. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you can go to www.childpolicy.org slash NAS risk, and you can look at our, you know, our simplest model. And what's interesting about it is that you can, you can modify different risks. You can change things like birth weight, things like how many cigarettes are smoked and see a predicted risk. That's an excellent piece of information. I'm interested to see what's going to happen with this prediction model going forward. So I'm going to change the topic just for a second and go back to the Center for Child Health Policy. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you all are working on now? Sure. So the uh, Center for Child Health Policy is focused on improving the well-being of children and families. It's a broad multidisciplinary group that includes folks from both Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Vanderbilt University. It includes folks from education, uh, health policy, the Divinity School, the Department of Pediatrics, health policy. So it has a broad view. And so we do work that is certainly research-based, but we also do some work that aims to be real-time and trying to provide data to discussions that are happening within our state. You know, one of the things that we've been working on over the last couple months has been the Vanderbilt Child Health Poll, which provides near real-time data from Tennessee parents. So it's sampled to be representative of all Tennessee parents. Uh, and this year we oversampled for non-Hispanic Black parents too to, to try to understand issues of equity that permeate many of the questions that we ask. So the data that we've released over the last couple of months has really shown a substantial amount of things that are affecting kids. You know, we found, for example, from 2019 to 2020, the number of children without health insurance more than doubled. And as of November, 9% of Tennessee children are uninsured. And Tennessee has a long history of being one of the state, the state with one of the lowest rates of uninsurance among kids. The other thing that we found is that two out of five children in Tennessee are food insecure a really substantial increase and certainly higher than what we see nationally. So we found that there's been some substantial challenges that are facing kids. And, you know, we've released this and we're releasing a report on education too, that tries to understand, you know, how are kids experiencing education differently? We find that, for example, black children are far more likely to be learning remotely than white children. And we're, you know, releasing this at the same time as as the legislature uh, is meeting to to address many of these issues. So that's part of what we try to do. You know, it's not about putting out, it's about putting out data and it's about trying to provide objective data for what's affecting families in our community. It's an important project. Can you please give us that website again? Sure. Our website is www.childpolicy.org. We have a series of polls that are that have been released, including national data that you can find at uh, www.childpolicy.org forward slash poll. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll make sure to put those links in the show notes so our listeners can find those easily. So tell us a little bit about your next project, the mom model. Well, we've been working collaboratively to change the way that we provide care to pregnant women and infants affected by the opioid crisis. Um, Along with TinCare, we received a $5.3 million grant from the federal government from CMS to begin to build a model for pregnant women and infants. And so the federal government awarded this to 10 states, uh, including Tennessee, and every state is a little bit different. But the model that we've been working on with TinCare is initially at least focused on on Vanderbilt. And its aim is to break down the silos of and care. So 
uh, intentionally addressing things like you know social barriers like transportation, food security, as well as the silos that occur in care. You know, oftentimes we see for pregnant women with opioid use disorder, you know, they 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 can't get their prenatal care in the same place as their addiction care is the same place that assesses their hepatitis C or their psychiatric issues or their their child's pediatric care. So we're aiming to do that and do that in a way that patient-centered and that addresses the the needs for, for families. And we're doing that with this sort of backbone of peer navigators. So we have peer navigators as someone with lived experience in recovery that helps guide parents through, uh, through the process of recovery all the way beginning in pregnancy to one year postpartum. And, you know, I think one of the questions is this sort of, you know, well, so what, what are we hoping to achieve? And what we're trying to achieve and what more broadly the federal government is trying to achieve is basically if we begin to break down some of these barriers, can we provide better care cheaper? And I think we can. I mean, the, the truth is that many of the things that we're doing are not reimbursed now. Things like collaborative care models for psychiatry, some of the other things that we're doing are, you know, we, what we have is an inefficient system that just charges along the way. So if we can be innovative, if we can provide enhanced resources for moms to keep them in recovery, could we not only save the system money, but also provide better care? That's really what we're hoping to achieve. And we start enrolling our first sets of moms in, in July of this coming year. It's an exciting project. So Dr. Patrick, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate your time and talking about your latest projects and more information can be found in your links that you so graciously provided. Thank you. It's great to talk to you as always. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.